Welcome to the Adversity to Advantage podcast. This is the place to learn how to get through your worst rock bottom and start to embrace adversity. I'm your host, Petra Belzebor. I'm a therapist and a life coach, but my biggest learning is from my own rock bottom. My story includes being raised in a cult, dealing with depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts, and alcoholism. But along the way, I've learned to turn my entire life around to one of success, joy, and fulfillment. So in this podcast, I'll be talking to people from all walks of life who've done the same. I'll be teasing out the skills and tools necessary, as well as using my own experience to teach you how to turn your adversity into your biggest advantage. Welcome everyone once again to the Adversity to Advantage uh, podcast. I'm so excited to uh, welcome, we've got Simon Seligman on the line today. Um, he's, he's a life coach at the moment, but he spent 25 years in, in sort of the arts and communication field and is now mixing that, that life coaching that he did with the Coach Training Institute uh, with working with people within that industry. Um, Simon, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here. So, so did I get that right? What are you, fill in the blanks for us. What are you passionate about today within what you do? Yeah, what I really care about today is bridge building between people, but also within individuals. That sense of which comes through life coaching, I think, of helping somebody reestablish the bridges to themselves, to their inner voice, to their purpose, to their sense of direction, to that lost voice so often I find with a client at the start, they've just lost the ability to listen to themselves. And in my work through uh, in the arts and sort of heritage and communications, I found myself so often a bridge between people who spoke different languages. So if I was in a room full of marketeers, I needed to be able to communicate what all the curators and art historians needed communicating. When I was in a room full of art historians, I had to find a way of communicating the marketing language that they would understand and accept. And I realized how much I enjoy that looking both ways, trying to hold balance yeah. um, and different perspectives, all, all things that then come through in coaching. Of course. Um, and by the end of my, I, I had one big job, I worked for one big organization for nearly 20 years. And at the end, I was the head of communications. I was managing, I don't know, eight, eight 10, 12 people. And I realized what I was enjoying most were the one-to-one moments those chances to sit down with the individuals and really hear them, what they were looking for, what they were needing, where they were frustrated, where they were excited and motivated. And I remember I had a new boss towards the end, and every time she came around to my office, there'd be somebody in there pouring their heart out to me. And in the end, she said, I'm going to put a sign on your door, <laughs> which just says, fuck off, I'm working. Because <laughs> from time to time, you need to be doing the work that you're paid to do, not this Fair agony point. for everybody else. You which know. you enjoy which I love. And so the kind of the clues were there. Uh, and in fact, I recently went to uh, the 51st birthday party of somebody who was my best friend at school, who's actually gone into politics in the UK. Uh, he and I disagree profoundly on everything politically, but we've kept a thread of friendship. And he was head of school, and I was a great friend of his. And we used to sit up all night putting you know the world to right, and he'd use me as a sounding board. And he said to me, he said, I you were life coaching me then you were listening without without agenda you were reflecting back honestly with me you were encouraging me to see different points of view you know and that's when we were 17 18 so 
So it was lovely to have his perspective looking back on those decades and think, well, in some way, that's been an interest really all my adult life. It's been a theme, absolutely. But, but then why specifically life coaching? What made you actually turn to that uh, skill set and training? I, I was particularly influenced by a friend of mine, a friend called Gavin, who had worked for many years for IBM, does still work for IBM, and he did the CTI uh, training. And it was it just lit a fire in him. Uh, and he looked so uh, more kind of energized and excited by what it was giving him. And he would talk about it with such passion. And I was already kind of contemplating leaving this big job I'd had for so long, feeling I wanted to be my own master. And, and I wanted to kind of reduce my work down to these exchanges between individuals rather than this kind of big monolith. And it just those two things happened at the right time. And so I was exploring it. I liked the idea of something that would be rigorous, but wasn't a sort of, I needed to go off and get a degree. You know, I needed to kind of stop my life completely and go down a fully academic path. And I liked also after years of my own sort of therapeutic journey, um, as a client of therapists and a lot of men's work and, you know, all sorts of things that I've been involved in for my own personal development. I really liked the notion that coaching is about where are we now and where do we want to go? Absolutely. I've done so much digging around in my past and in my history and even back into kind of ancestral history and looking at, you know, those things. And I think they're really important and I benefited enormously, particularly given certain aspects of, of childhood. And, but I just like the idea both for myself and for the type of work I want to do, which is about, really finding a way to honor the person as they are now, naturally creative, resourceful, and whole. There they are uh, with all their qualities, which they don't necessarily always have full access to, and how to help them reveal themselves back to themselves. That just felt like a good fit. Yeah, yeah, how to, how to move your life forward. And, and when I did um, CTI, Coach Training Institute, um, mm. the most profound thing for me was the, the simple question, what do you want? And I realized I'd lived my whole life based on what do I need to do? What should I do? Um, Which really was influenced by other people's rules. And I think I cried for three days straight and that set me on the path to get divorced and Mm. to um, like literally the the year after that, my life had completely changed. Such a, such a profound experience for me. Um, So, so I'm excited about what you do now. And you know that the theme of this, this podcast is um, about adversity and about capturing Mm. your story of of sort of how you got to, to where you are now, which is impacting so many lives. So if you, if you just take us right back, and give us a little bit of, of context um, about how it was growing up. Do you think your, your parents and the education system sort of prepared you for the real world? <laughs> no, um, <laughs> I don't. I mean, I, I had, you know, I had an expensive education. Um, very, it was, I was in a family where um, the tradition was that, you know, the boys were sent away to private schools. They were boarding schools. Um, I went to both the primary and the secondary boarding school that my father and my grandfather had been to. Did you, did you say the boys, only the boys? Uh, well, my sister did go away later on. She did go away, but there was that kind of slightly weird sexist thing where yeah. you know, the girls stay home longer. I don't know what that's about. Oh, we could have a whole uh, discussion yeah. about that, but in, let's, let's indeed not. We could. In indeed any we case, could. you went. <laughs> anyway, I went. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's important to say, given what I'm going to say next, it's really important to say that I believed then, which was a problem, 
and I believe now, which is not a problem, that my parents wholeheartedly believed they were doing the very best thing for me. Of course. They really believed it, given the evidence they had, the knowledge they had, the world they lived in. Yeah, their own conditioning. So it's important to say that because I say with the judgment of being 51 that it was a profound mistake to send me away to a boarding school. I was eight, and I was homesick continuously until I was about 15. That's very young. you know, by the time I was 15, maybe I was getting used to it. I wouldn't say it was right, but I was used to it. You know, I you, was, adapt. you had to adapt. Yeah. It's survival by then. That's right. Mm. So, you know, you you deal with that classic thing that pretty well anyone who goes to boarding school and who doesn't just um, kind of sail along the surface of it, which, you know, some people seem to do. But anybody who questions it or thinks about it or gets in touch with the impact it has, I've heard so many people talk about this sense that coming to terms with this thing of here, mum and dad who, you know, love me, tell me they love me, who I trust, who are my world. Yeah. And they are telling me this thing which feels agonizing and painful and wrong. They are telling me it is right and good and important. And that kind of holding that paradox, well, I mean, you know, for a while, I think it broke me. I mean, I just couldn't hold the paradox. You can't when you're eight, for Christ's sake. You know, it's insane. It doesn't match how you're feeling on the inside. Exactly. And it's and like so you, you must sense, be telling yourself that your feelings are wrong. Completely. And and in my case, that feelings are a complete waste of time. Oh. Why have a fe- You know, why have a feeling? I have a feeling you see me in floods of tears crying my heart out for the hours leading up to when you put me on the bus for the two and a half hour coach journey to my boarding school, which was two and a half hours away. So not a place where I could drop home at the weekends. You know, it was a long way away from home. You see me expressing this and you are somehow not hearing it. It's there's a wonderful line in a William Stafford poem, the American poet. He talks about, um, I call it cruel and the root of all cruelty to know what occurs but not to recognize the fact. Yeah. And it's that feeling. It's like, but you know what's going on, but you're not recognizing it. And you're not recognizing your part in what you could do to change it. And of course it would have shattered so many of their, their model of how the world and their kind of social world works. You know, just that that's, that's how people like the expectation, their education of their kids. And you know, so many wonderful opportunities and beautiful school and all these, you know, all this, all of these terrible cliches that get trotted out. Of course. And did, did you have siblings or, or like, who did you talk to? Who well, did I was you the go oldest. To? Oh, you were the oldest. Was, uh, you I were the guinea pig then. <laughs> I was the guinea pig, sister two years younger. And part of the dynamic was that I was, um, and I would own this for myself, but it was also part of how I was kind of personified in the family. I was quite shy, quite quiet, quite timid. Um, my sister, two years later, was this amazing blonde bombshell. And, you know, the kind of joke in the family was, her phrase was, I can do that, I can do that. <laughs> and my parents felt, I think they would have sent me away anyway, but they felt very strongly that I was being overwhelmed by her. And that actually to head off to school, in spite of my relative timidity and shyness and sort of quiet nature at that time, would, would do just you good. have a chance to have space to grow separate from her kind of constantly you know, somehow claiming, claiming the space. Now, my sister has gone on to be an amazing, dynamic, extraordinary, um, original, unusual person. And, we're, you know, we're different in many ways, but we have an intense kind of bond, which can go, you know, even months of separation, we can just absolutely, we tune in to each other. Mm. And she, we both worked through a lot of grief work around 
boarding and school and separation. And, you know, she remembers that moment of where the hell has he gone? Mm. You know, she was six. Where the hell has he gone? So it imp- she, impacted her in a profound way as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then she went, you know, she went boarding later on um, and had her own experience. But And then I have a brother who's nine years younger than me and very different character uh, in terms of a, a kind of real inner resilience from a young age. And he went away, but he went um, much more locally. He went a year later. Uh, he was nine and he was a chorister. So he went to a school that was connected to a cathedral and a big school and he sang in chapels and so on. And he loved it. He's, he's now a musician. Um, but he would acknowledge again, that kind of disconnection that started to happen from the home. And then in fact, our parents split up when he was quite young, um, when I was 18 and he, there was something about him being at school and the kind of stability that worked for him. In, in a kind of a way. But it was interesting that by then, you know, 10 years on, my mother had had found her voice a little bit. And it was like, he's not going so young and he's going locally and we're going to see much more of him. And it was a different, I mean, it was still within the same paradigm, but it was a different notion of, of what would be healthy for a young child. And, and do you think she very much learned from what she witnessed or experienced within the separation with you and perhaps your sister? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, you know, I spent my early twenties, um, with a lot of rage, a lot of which they both heard my parents in their different ways. My mother, I think came to a, has come to a deeper understanding of, um, the damage. My father, it's complicated for him. I think he would acknowledge the pain. I'm not sure he would give way on the principle uh, he loved it. He was an only child. He was head of his school. He absolutely loved his school days. He goes back to reunions. He, you know, his old headmaster who lived to a great age, who was a wonderful scholar, just died last year. And every year, my father and other old boys of the school would go and take him out for lunch and this, that, and the other. I mean, I would slit my throat rather than go and fraternalize with people from my So a completely school. different experience. So it's harder Jeez. for him to identify the, yeah. the sort of pain that you went through. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And so we, I kind of refer to, to rock bottoms or um, crashes, those, that sort of terminology. And you're talking mm-hmm. about adversity. You're talking about the rage that you experienced. Um, can you identify with those terms at all? Would you say that you've had a sort of a rock bottom in your life? Yeah, well, I, I, um, I mean, I think <laughs> school, the early years at school were a kind of very extended rock bottom in yeah. the sense you know, it was just like an ongoing weirdness, which I had to normalize very quickly, but which just... Just didn't sit right. Didn't sit right. I mean, the way I described it, the words I came up with in my 20s was it felt like I had been orphaned. It felt like I'd been chucked out, chucked away. Not chucked out, chucked away, thrown yeah. away. It was like, right, off you go. You know, we don't need you at home anymore. This isn't where you grow up. Uh, we farm that out to other people now. And that kind of dislocation... Um, I just internalized slowly but surely. Then it happened again when I moved schools at 13 and I would I spent a couple of terms just you know, crying my eyes out night after night after night, utterly miserable. I think, but in terms of there's a kind of rock bottom moment, it was actually um, when I was starting at university and I, I got depressed. And um, among the many ironies of this story is that it was my dad, bless him, who suggested, would I like to talk to a therapist? consider talking to a therapist and we had an aunt by marriage who was training as a therapist and she gave some names and 
And I saw a guy in London for a few years when I was, um, so that's, this is my, you know, I was 1920, I guess, 21. And although, you know, the cynical could say, well, once again, a parent farming out the solution to a paid professional. Yeah. It was a wonderful step forward because I was able to, it was like, the early experience of that therapy, the therapist would leave a lot of silence, which absolutely terrified me. Of course. But what I recognize now, years later, is that at some level, he was letting me experience how frozen I was, how completely cut off from really being in touch with my grief, my rage, my the kind of the agony, the contorted agony of, of just feeling abandoned and having closed down feelings it was like feelings are far too risky there's no point look what happened when i was eight yeah i gave off feelings for all to see you know they couldn't have been a bigger fucking firework display and they got shut just down. carried on nothing so i wasn't taking kind of thing. yeah mm. so it, he although it was very uncomfortable it, i think that was where i really got down into the mud and started to feel it and but you stuck with it for a good while. Like um, yeah. sometimes that can feel quite punitive, and and you just want to leave and escape that that sort of horrific feeling. Well, I I think there was something in me which I'm I don't know. You know, is it is it innate or is it is it you know there are no. positive things going on in the world alongside all this dark all this darkness but there was something in me that recognized without knowing what it was again that william stafford line that i if i didn't connect to this i was never going to find my pulse i was never going to find my i mean as we might say in coaching terms my purpose but but actually just my pulse just what you know who am I? What Your am identity. I? Where is my heart? What, yeah. Yeah. Giving yourself permission. Yeah. And also to start to grow up. I, I did in my, when I was 24, 25, I was living in London. Um, I was ill in bed one day and there was a daytime TV interview with Robert Bly, the American poet, you know, mythologist and so on. who was, you know, very hot at the time with his book, Iron John and the men's movement, which, you know, has its own controversies. But, um, and he was just on TV talking and reading his poetry. And I was very, very drawn. And then it said, you know, he's leading a men's retreat next summer in the UK for the first time, six days. And I just thought, well, I don't know what bit of me did it, but I just signed up for it. It was just like, I have to do this. Because the thought going in the back of my mind as you're telling your whole story is around um, male conditioning in particular, um, as far as, you know, the emotion that you were showing that wasn't okay, as far as at what point does, does a man, you know, ask for help? At what yep. point is it okay to see a therapist to admit that, you know, that, that sort of theme, I'm, I'm just curious about, you know, oh, a men's retreat, like, wh- yeah, what possessed you, I guess, uh, yeah, well, to actually go, hey, this might be interesting. I think I was, I think through perhaps the early therapy and, you know, growing up to adulthood and having first relationships with women, I, I realized I was still a boy. I felt in many ways frozen at eight. I felt frozen at eight sort of sexually, physically. I had this image of myself as still having a kind of pre-adolescent body, even though I was, you know, a grown man. Um, I had a sense of myself just feeling very um, kind of small and constrained. And 
It was like, I'm not sure I've got permission to be birthed into the adult world. And actually, I'm not sure I want to be birthed into the yeah. adult world. With all that was going on. It's a scary place. Was, yeah, very. And there was something about Bly's uh, kind of playfulness. And he had his sort of ukulele and he would read his poems, but sort of be strumming underneath them. And there was something kind of, there was something um, Pied Piperish actually about him. Mm, mesmerizing. I, just, I was kind of drawn and I just thought, well, that's really interesting. I knew nothing about the men's movement. You know, I mean, I bought Iron John and I read it and didn't understand a lot of it, but I, 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 I realized through that process that I also, one of the things I'd picked up along the way was a kind of golden prince um, story, which was that actually through schooling, I had elevated myself in my fantasies out of it, that I was going to be somebody who would be saved by magic. I was going to be somebody who would be plucked, that you know, money would cascade out of a rainbow, and I would suddenly be the prince who didn't have to work, who didn't have to have effort, who didn't have to um, apply himself. Mm sort of magical thinking and there was something about uh, the story of Anjan which talks about that in in Bly's book um and the prince who goes and works in the kitchen and he has a cap over his golden hair so people don't know that he's the you know sort of chosen one and and then the cap falls off and people see the gold and and he has to go on a journey into the wilderness you know classic mm. archetype um story and anyway that led me to the to the um to the week and the, the crucial moment in that week was, um, I, you know, I spent the whole week in a room with Bly and with other amazing teachers, um, um, Michael Mead and John Hillman. It, it was an amazing trio of, of men and three very different models of men. And I guess I was meeting three models of fatherhood, three models of adult male, three models of men for whom feelings were completely fundamental to their place in the world. And that was both extraordinary you know the kind of eight-year-old was looking around going oh my jesus god is this okay yeah yeah yeah. and the adult in me was just tumbling into it it was like oh my god you know what i just a relief, got right yeah it's like extraordinary this is allowed this is per- permitted and on the last day i still hadn't had an individual interaction with Bly, and i just thought i've got to before i leave i've got to just go up to him you know because when you're a hundred men you know it's a big crowd sure and um so I just was walking down a corridor and where I knew he had a kind of resting room and, and I thought, well, I'll go knock on the door. And then he came down to the corridor towards me and I, I came up to him. And as I walked up to him, I felt my body contract. I mean, literally, I could feel my balls just kind of lift up into my body. My voice went up like this. And I went, hello, Robert. Uh, uh, <laughs> my name's Simon. I just wanted to say thank you very much uh, personally and... And he just took my hands in his warmly and he had this wonderful deep gravelly voice. And he just saw me. He said something like, you know, you are welcome here. What was that like? Oh, I mean, I felt, I felt, I felt almost cradled as though I was an infant. It was as though he had just taken me and held me and gave me permission to be you know, in this company of men. And it was also, there were two things. One thing which I didn't understand until years later, which was your welcome here means you're welcome here just as you are now. So it was partly welcome to the company of men, but it was also, and what I'm welcoming is what you bring. This whole messy mix of 
am I a boy? Am I a man? Am I, you know, all, all the questions I was debating in my mind about life and myself and, um, all the confusions leading from childhood, it was just like, yes, here you are. You're in a room with a hundred men, all of whom are this mess and this glory and this fear and this magnificence and all the other things. And he didn't have to say any of that. And I, but it was the fact that my voice, you know, I could just feel the whole kind of contraction. It was like, I need, I need him to meet my little boy somehow. And that was a wonderful, that was a wonderful moment. And that was, I think, the beginning of a, a turn, a shift. Uh, and I, I was actually at that point planning to move up to where I live now in Derbyshire and the kind of middle of the UK. And I, um, at that retreat, I met a guy who was a psychotherapist who was moving to Sheffield, my local city, and was planning to start a men's group. And would I be interested in being a founder member of his men's group? And, you know, within a year, I was attending a men's group every week, which I did for 14 years with him. And, and, and for, for people who don't know, that you're, you're saying a men's group. I'm, I'm picturing Sorry. a whole load of men sort of getting together and just chatting and being able to be themselves. Um, was, was there a structure to these sorts of events? How did it go if there's men yeah, listening uh, who are curious? Yeah, no, good question. Um, yes, a gathering of men, in this case led by a psychotherapist. So often men's groups, I'm in a men's group now, which is not led by a particular person. We co-lead it. Uh, with a different structure, which I can come to. But um, this first one was uh, an opportunity for men to explore and examine their lives at a level deeper than, you know, uh, women, football and beer. Right. <laughs> uh, to, to you know, use the cliche of, of, of kind of male banter in the pub and stuff. And it was a held space. So it was an opportunity collectively. There were never more than 12 in the group. Sometimes it was down to five or six, you know, ebbed okay, and flowed. Quite uh, intimate. Yeah. There were four of us who uh, were in it all the way through. And of the, of those four, one has sadly died, but the other three we meet for dinner every three months. Mm. Uh, and it's, I mean, it's now nearly 30 years since we first met. So that's been a beautiful thread in my life, but, and it would be, yeah, it would be two and a half hours of, um, talking, uh, particular men would have something very live they needed to talk about, to share in, to check in with, uh, a chance to unpick something, to explore something. The chance to be vulnerable, to be terrified, to be um, Emotional. worried, scared, mm. you know, just to examine the so-called dark emotions and feelings, those ones that we're taught, you know, aren't very welcome, aren't polite, and certainly are not welcome in a man. Um, and and, and especially before. man to man, because occasionally a man will be able to show some emotion maybe to his wife or to, to yep. his girlfriend. Um, um, emotion not to be confused with, with weakness, because I feel like men yep. sense if it's, you know, women want men to be vulnerable and they say, show us your feelings. And, um, but we can very much, once that does happen, if a man yep. falls apart, we can, you know, you can see the fear in our eyes yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because yeah. we're not being held or protected. And so I feel like women have to take a little bit of ownership for the process, that do, the conditioning that does happen to men. Um, but what a profound experience just to be yourselves and, and be okay with talking to, to another man about yeah. what's really going on. Yeah. And, and to exactly, and to unpick the taboos and the, you know, the, the kind of false beliefs that had built up through my life of, you know, how the world worked and what needed to happen. And, 
you know, I remember I was fascinated. Uh, um, you know, I'd been very kind of sexually confused when I was a teenager and full of doubt and full of wonder and curiosity. And, and in this group, there was one guy who became a really good friend, um, who was this amazingly kind of confident sexual being, you know, he mm-hmm. just, he just had a way with him and, uh, had a lot of success in inverted commas, but, but it wasn't that it was just the way he held himself as somebody who it's like, why would I be embarrassed to have a cock? Why would I be embarrassed to be a sexual man? Why would I, and it was, it was completely mesmerizing. And so that's just one example where I was able to really kind of examine and explore about what's that like and in turn be challenged on, well, what is it that you're apologizing for? What is it that's not allowed? You know, you also are a man. You also have a cock. You also have a right to be sexual in the world. What is stopping you? And I mean, that's just one example. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a group about sex and no, sexuality. I get it, but, but, but what's interesting is that's the, the, the underneath the insecurities, like underneath the male bravado of showing off and comparing yeah. and, you know, I had that girl and all that yeah. sort of thing. That's that sort of okay um, sort of pub banter, as you say. Um, but mm. underneath the fact that, you know, men also have insecurities about these things. Women try and claim this as our own territory, thinking it's yeah. simpler for you guys, right? Um, yeah. But actually, and, and I'm curious about this, the, the way this conversation is going, because in my experience, sort of as a therapist, I'm mm. uh, working with some men who have had sort of the boarding school experience. Yeah. Um, very similar, the impact that they see over and over today is within their relationships, yeah. Um, both with men, but particularly with, with women and, mm. you know, not being able to show any emotion, any vulnerability and, and sort of the impact that that has, the negative impact. And so yeah. I, I'm, I'm really curious about how this part developed because it sounds like it took a lot of work, self-reflection, self-awareness, insight in order to mm. move into what I assume you're able to now have our, our sort of healthier relationships. If you, tell us a bit about that. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I've been with my partner Sophie for twenty years. We've been married for well done fifteen years, mm-hmm. um, and this has absolutely played out in all sorts of complex ways. And one example I can give you, which is in a sense been very live recently, which is that you know I had when when we met, I had this big monolithic job at this working for this amazing historic house with this great art collection. It looked like it was a job for life. I got a house with the job, a car, my phone. You know, it was all very kind of relatively high status and yeah. secure. And then a point came where, for all sorts of reasons, it was right to move on and to leave. And that precipitated what, you know, the cliche would be a bit of a midlife crisis because what I thought I was going to leave and go and do fell apart for various reasons. And then I had to stop at age 45, go, who the hell am I if I'm not that? Mm. You know, I've been doing that for 20, for 20 years. And to the point where when I ne- when I went for a job interview at age 45, it was my first job interview. Wow. I had never had a formal job interview in my life. Yeah. So I'd been very kind of protected and I really fell apart and including 18 months of, of really quite deep depression. And, um, and here we are now seven years on and, and Sophie would acknowledge, in fact, we we're talking about it very recently that it was terrifying 
you know, I was never the kind of alpha male kind of, right, you know, I get in the car and I go to work and you bring up the kids. You know, we, we had ambitions to be 50-50 parents um, as much as possible that, you know, other than breastfeeding, there was nothing a father couldn't do that a mother can do. Yeah. Um, that, you know, that it was a complementary partnership. It wasn't about um, stereotypes. And particularly as we've had two daughters, we wanted them to grow up hmm. with an understanding that, you know, mum and dad are both – uh, out there and at home and all, you know, all of that. And, um, but I went to kind of, I went to pieces and she went into overdrive, um, in terms of work and she's freelance and she took on more and more work and got very exhausted with it and so on and so forth. And that, some of that's her stuff around security. But what we are able to talk about now is I really needed to know you were there. And for a while it felt like you weren't there. But what she's now realized is that at some level, of course, I was always there, but I was there in a different form. I, I had internalized. I was, you know, finding life very dark, finding it hard to see a way forward. And and yes, I'm finding it very hard to communicate, which felt like a legacy of, again, of school. It's like I have to do it on my own. I have well, to do it on my own. And I want to highlight the the shame factor. So yeah. when, when we feel ashamed of the feelings or that we're not able to function in the way we've been conditioned to think we should, we, we tend to isolate or hide away, whether that's literally yeah. or, or sort of yeah. mentally, uh, because we just don't want people to see us in that state, which, which essentially just prolongs the agony in a way, or it certainly exactly. did for me. Exactly. Yeah, I, I, uh, I recognize that. And um, I realized very clearly, both within the depression and, and coming through it, that I... I had such, still after all these years and all the work I've been doing, I had such a powerful template. It felt like it was kind of stamped in the DNA of every body cell, which yeah. was, you are on your own. You have to do this on your own. There's no other way. If you share it, you're a burden. If you share it, you're, not so much if you share it, you're a failure, but it's like if you share it, you won't, you won't continue to exist whole. You will be you will have been, you know, your disc would have been corrupted in some way. And in fact, um, this is uh, literally this week, I was at my current men's group, which meets every couple of weeks. And um, I did a piece of work around staying open hearted, staying in connection when somebody else is taking the lead in wanting more, more connection and more, um, more kind of flow, and wanting to just keep open that sense of hello, here I am. Even if everything in your body is, is sort of screaming to hide away. Absolutely. And I, I, so I did a piece of work on it and was really able to feel this fear body that rises up and that says, Simon, if you let your guard down, you know, this has been 24 hours. You've been having this gorgeous, intimate, flowing time with her. If you let your guard down and really stay, really stay in that same beautiful space, you are going to disappear. There won't be a Simon left. Terrifying. And of course, that is, you know, that is school. I mean, that is the boy at eight who just looked around and went, right, we just need to close down. Otherwise, we are not going to exist. We won't be safe here. We won't have any capacity to survive this experience. So I had to kind of hermetically seal myself. And I remember, um, again, in the early days of therapy, this phrase came up, which was that all my energy went into my won't rather than my will. It was like, well, if so long as I don't conform to that as long as i don't go along with that stupid school rule as long as i don't show any feeling about that as long as i don't show mm. that that bullying is really hurting me i will be safe and so for years and years and years into adulthood and it still plays out at times 
it's like, I can tell you what I don't want. I can tell you what is not okay. I can tell you all about the reasons not to get involved in a community or a group or a bunch of people. But turn it around and say, Simon, what's your will? What are you stepping towards? What's your purpose? What do you want? Has been a much, much harder process. And I mean, I'm just taken back again to to my coaching training and that that was the most profound shift was going, what do you want? What's the direction? You know, taking some ownership yeah. and being yes. proactive about your both your mind and your goals and your intention and your direction rather than, than going, I was hurt because I am impacted yeah. because... And I'm a therapist and a coach, so I'm very uh, um, attached to let's look at our patterns and let's look at how the, the past is impacting us now, but not mm-hmm. to stay stuck there. You know, there's yeah. people that are in therapy for years and years going, I, I just left and I'm just still stuck in the problem. And I'm th- I feel like every therapist should also be a coach. Right? Yeah. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I, I really like that. It's making me chuckle because after I've worked on and off now with th- four therapists and um, all, all as it happens to have been men, but very different characters. And it's been really interesting, those who are willing to engage with the here and now. Yeah. And those for whom the past is the is the territory they're comfortable in. And, um, and that also makes sense. The, 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 the problem is the territory we're comfortable in. So you go to a therapist initially because something's wrong, right? Um, but then we sort of perpetuate that cycle by expecting you, as soon as you walk in the door, to talk about what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong, what's wrong, and what's difficult. And fair enough, the purpose is to work through some of that. But I wish more therapists would say, would start off with going, well, just let me know what's going right in your life right now. Yeah. Just to balance out the context. And then, yes, let's go into uh, the challenge and the difficulty, but you now are underpinned with the strength of what's actually going right, like your lens is different. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that from the word go, there is going to be, you know, one of the things I love most in the coaching model is this balance and paradox, which is this can be true and this is true. Right. Get comfortable with the, the difference and the uncertainty and, and all of that is okay if you're bringing your full authentic self. Exactly. And that in that, there will be, you know, the, the shadow doesn't exist without the light and the light can't exist without its shadow. And, and you know, that's a, um, you know, the beginning of Peter Pan is the loss of a shadow. And um, it's, there's a kind of, you know, there's a, there's a magical truth in that. And I, yeah, again, that took a long, long time to be willing to own my gold as well as my darkness. And that's really interesting because in going through this kind of adversity to advantage journey with people, we tend to say, you know, that shit happened in the past. However, now everything's perfect. I have perfect Mm -hmm. relationships. I have a perfect job. I have a perfect, you know, and because we love that. We love a good hero's journey story. Um, So so my my question to you is, what, what, what do you have to face now and how do you manage it? Okay, so... um, there are quite a few strands in here, I think. One of them I want to acknowledge is parenting, which is that I spent, so our, our oldest daughter is just 14. And so is my so son. That, I, uh-huh. I, I hear you, okay. I feel you. <laughs> Great, okay. So for me, I'd be interested to know if this chimes for you, but for me, the journey of parenting has been the journey away from certainty. Of course. You know, early 30s, I pretty much thought I knew how the world worked, how I worked, hmm. what I wanted from life, this, is, this was going to happen, that was going to happen. Kids would fit in really neatly into that. And then we became parents, and Jesus, God, the whole thing started to unravel. Yes. 
<laughs> and there are two layers, even to that strand, there are two layers. One is just the journey into maturing into uncertainty completely upended my model, which is that I thought, you know, as one got older, one would know more and understand more and life would get simpler and clearer and more authoritative. No, curveball. You, you, exactly. you know nothing. <laughs> you know nothing. And so that's extraordinary and indeed is one of my critiques of politics is it's now my generation in power. And I think, well, I know how much I don't know. Right. How the hell it the hell are you playing this game? <laughs> Trying to run the country. Yeah. So um, there's that. Secondly, I hadn't anticipated the intense way in which parenting would re-trigger my own childhood. I mean, the most intense playing field. I think parenting and uh, long-term relationships, the, the most intense playing field for ev- any triggering events that have ever happened to us. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. literally. Yeah. Nobody tells you that. <laughs> I, I remember uh, um, one of my few friends from my boarding school. He um, he's remained a good friend, and he came to stay when our oldest one was eight, mm-hmm. and we were sitting around, you know, having a meal around the table. And he, I just saw him misty eyed, and I said, Are "You okay?" And he said, "I'm just looking at her, and I'm just acknowledging that this sweet." babbling innocent little person who needs home and parents infinitely is the age you and i were when we were sent off oh you know he was being triggered one removed if you like and um that was very 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 powerful and that's come up constantly through but both the schooling yeah you know my my wife and i because we both were sent away it's like we get to a certain age once once our oldest was eight it was like how do you do this how do you how do they go to school and come home how do you integrate that life how, we literally have no idea so we're making it up as we go along so that's been fascinating so those are in answer to your bigger question those are that's one really big strand for me is just accepting you know putting l plates back on the car of life and saying i don't know but i've no idea what i'm doing I haven't done it before you know so there's that i think um for me the the period of, of depression taught me that that was not, A, not a thing to be afraid of or to hide, but also that in a sense it was now woven into the fabric of my being. And that actually having had that experience, I had deepened and expanded in all sorts of directions because I had to acknowledge my capacity to go very dark mm. and to go very high and light and gold and, um, all the embrace, all the facets of yourself. Yeah. And so for example, um, we live in this beautiful Valley near a river and just the other side of the river is a wood. And in the wood is a pond, uh, under the trees. And it's got huge rocks sort of falling into it. And it's just on a public footpath, but it's, it's a place I've formed an intense bond with. And it was actually, I went there. Um, I mean, we've walked past it for years, but I, happened to go to it when I was towards the end of the time when I was really down and you know not to get too mystical about these things but the pond spoke to me Mm. and it just said here I am here is a place where your darkness is always welcome and if you look up you will always see the light you know and there's a clearing above it and of course the joy in the water of the pond is that it is reflecting the light it's this deep dark black water it's actually not very deep it's only about three feet deep but it looks very dark you can feel the image yeah then you see the light in it and it 
I, whenever I go there, I try and go there several times a week. It's a 15 minute walk from the house. I just feel that this place accepts my paradox that I am both dark and light, that I am both healed and broken, that I am vulnerable and strong, you know, all of the, all of those, um, pairings and paradoxes. And it just gives me permission to be all those things. All of you. So what you, what you don't know is how profound this is for me to hear right now today. Um, huh. it's, it's literally what's been coming up cause I'm seeing a therapist at the moment. Um, huh. and I've worked so hard to, to run away or not even run away to build a life of, you know, respectability, um, after, you know, being raised in a, in a cult and, um, suffering uh-huh. from, you know, alcoholism, depression, suicidal thoughts, all the, you know, like so fucking dark. Yeah. And my therapist is really going, you know, what about that side? What about that side? You know, and I go into this babbling phase of like, yes. And I sort of do the therapist thing on myself in order to have it all figured out. And, and <laughs> yeah. But I understand logically, like every step has led to this place. And I understand why I react this way and all the rest of it, you know. And she's so amazing. She's just like, what about this place? What was that emotion? What did that feel like? And I'm like, no, you know. So, mm. so I mean, my eyes just welled up when you, when you described the image of, of, of the water. And, you know, this, my, my darkness is also welcome. You know, yes. it, it, all of me is welcome in relationship yeah. and in connection, not just the, the fixer and the healer and the, and the one that is better, you know. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's this richness. And that's really why I'm doing this podcast, because I want to draw out that story for people. You know, yeah. all of us is, is OK. So I just Absolutely. have to say thank you so much. Oh, well, I'm 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 so touched to hear that. And, you know, glad it, it glad it resonates. And and, it, and it's it, it reinforces my belief, which clearly you share that, you know, that however hard and painful it is to go there. The point about accepting the whole of ourselves is that. We're all there, whether we acknowledge it or not, whether right. we respect it, listen to it. It's part of us. It's, I mean, I feel that one of the biggest things I deal with in my coaching um, is, which I've had plenty of myself, as has probably come through in this, in this, uh, us talking this morning, is this magical belief that if I don't think about it or don't feel it, it doesn't exist. Right. And clearly, all the evidence, <laughs> you know, yeah, exactly. That doesn't work. No, it doesn't and, it, work. and it pops up in weird ways, whether it's, yeah. whether it's aggression, whether it's stonewalling someone, uh, whether it's isolation, depression, like it, it pops up um, yeah. as much as we want to. Uh, and even in physical health conditions, I believe it pops up, yeah, you know, when, when we don't sort of face up. Um, yeah. Simon, we could talk literally all day. Um, but I have sort of two final things I want to ask you but before we end. One is, uh, what advice would you give to somebody who is in that depressive state? So if you imagine your darkest place um, and, yeah. and when, when you just don't see a way out and you're isolating and you can't kind of maybe grasp that logical side of understanding it, um, yeah. what, what advice would, would you give to them? Well, one of the things, just picking up on the pond idea, would be whether you live in an urban or a rural environment, is see if you can just find a place that will hold you as you are feeling right then. A place that it might be that because it, it reminds you of something or because the darkness and the light or the sense of safety or quiet or noise or, or nature or uh, something that connects you to a bigger skin than your own 
I love that. That allows you to be possible, even if you can't do it with another person initially, that allows it to be possible for you to be held in the world in the state you're feeling. And you're saying to physically go to this place. Absolutely. To search it. Find it. it. You know, if there's a place. Yeah. Might be a, you know, a bench that you pass on the way to work. It might be a, God knows what it might be. A tree. uh, I love trees. Yeah. (laughs) A tree. uh, I, I, um, I remember hearing about a friend who was very sad about stuff and, and another friend just picked him up and said, right, we're going to Hampstead Heath to hug trees for the day. Oh, I, I do do that, actually. Do you, I can't yeah. believe I'm saying that on my podcast, but uh, <laughs> occasionally I will often be with people and it's those really big trees that are just overwhelmingly yeah. connected to nature and it just feels so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and also, you know, all the trees trees that grow in a clump, you know, they're all communicating underground. Their roots are interacting. There's an amazing exchange going on underground. And and so if you hug one tree, you are part of a family of something bigger immediately. And that majesty and the scale of it, and it doesn't judge you. The physical world does not judge you. Mm. And I don't think, I've yet to meet somebody, you know, we're all brilliant at projecting all our most, all these malicious self-images we have onto other people yeah oh she thinks this he thinks that they would think that they might think that yeah it's very hard to do that with nature it's very hard to look at an oak tree and go that fucking oak tree is judging me (laughs) no it isn't so there's something about that it's magical it's just there it's just there and you can be you because it has got no interest in you being any different from how you are it it is an oak tree being oaky being, being, being a strong oak tree and for people in yep. the city there are trees there are places to go you just there have to look trees. and it could and it could it might not be nature it might be something else that connects you yep. to, to majesty or or something um outside of yourself um yep. simon we're, we're going to have to close for for this i feel like i want to get you on again and just talk about men's groups relationships and like just dive in deeper uh, um, i'd be delighted <laughs> it would be so good yeah. um but but for now where, where can people find you if they if they want to work with you or or they want to follow you on social media where can they find you okay uh well i have a facebook page which is seligman coaching uh i'm on uh twitter um uh, tending to be quite political um because i'm so distressed by the world but um my twitter handle actually is is well simon seligman would find me um and i have a website which is seligmancoaching.co.uk and that's where i talk about my life coaching um and always delighted to communicate with people whether it's because they're interested in coaching or just in dialogue and conversation yeah, and I imagine people might come to you to find out more about men's groups or, or how they can go about well, finding them. Yeah, really passionate about that. So very, very happy to uh, talk about those and the impact they've had on me anyway. Amazing. Well, we'll, we'll add all of that into the show notes so people can be sure um, to find you. But for now, Simon, thank you for being an amazing guest. And I felt like I've had therapy. I just feel oh, like, it, or coaching or whatever it was, I am transported into some kind of magic and I'm going to go hug a tree. I don't know about anyone else. Great. That's good. I will do the same. Lovely. Thank Thank you you so much. much. (laughs) Okay. Take care. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. If something helped you today, please do share this episode with a friend and let them know that they are not alone. I know that for me, isolation kept me stuck much longer than I needed to be. So let's practice courage and talk to someone about what's going on, as that's the first step to making life amazing. Check out my website, petravelsbor.com, for your free Kickstarter plan, which will teach you to turn your biggest weaknesses into your greatest strengths. 
Join the community of people who are changing the way they view life's challenges and living life to the full. Until next time, goodbye.